Hello, and welcome to everyone to today's podcast episode on bipolar depression. This episode is part of the Clinical Care Options podcast series, Advancing Care in Bipolar Depression. I'm Dr. Greg Mattingly, an associate clinical professor at the Washington University School of Medicine and president of the Midwest Research Group here in St. Louis, Missouri. With me today is my good friend and colleague who's going to discuss upcoming research and developments in bipolar depression, Dr. Vladimir Malatek, who's a clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Greenville, South Carolina. Dr. Malatek, why don't we go ahead and jump into the discussion because I know we have a lot to cover. So when we think about, you know, what are the hot topics right now in bipolar research? Let's talk about what's come out in the past year. Let's talk about what's in the pipeline. What do we anticipate in 2023? Uh, these are all great questions, uh, Greg, and, and, and I think that uh, some of it stems uh, directly from uh, research, uh, uh, both in terms of neurobiology of bipolar disorder, uh, but also having some better understanding of changes in neurotransmission and genetics in bipolar disorder. So uh, here's one of the uh, key studies that was published just a few years ago. Uh, it was a study conducted in, in patients uh, who experience psychotic episode be in context of schizophrenia, be it in context of bipolar illness. Uh, the studies was uh, conducted in a manner that uh, if patients met the inclusion criteria, uh, they received an injection of DOPA that carried a, a radio label tag with it. Of course, that DOPA was then converted into dopamine in the, in the brain. Um, one used positive and negative syndrome scale to evaluate the intensity of psychotic symptoms in context of, of mania and uh, of schizophrenia. And they correlated with the changes uh, that were noted in PET scan. And what they found in both of these conditions, which by the way, are very strongly genetically associated. So the, the closest genetic relative of bipolar illness is schizophrenia. In both of these instances, there was substantial increase in dopamine synthesis and release in associative strata. So that changed our opinion in terms of what is associated with positive symptoms in these states. So on one hand, we can say, well, yes, uh, we have been on the good track with using dopamine to antagonist. Unfortunately, there's also evidence suggesting that uh, first-generation dopamine to antagonist, while they may have helped with these positive symptoms, symptoms of psychosis, on the other hand, uh, they can decrease the sense of wellness, they can interfere with cognition, and will not help and may accentuate negative symptoms of these conditions. So uh, the big question is, is there some way to optimize dopamine transmission uh, without using these conventional second-generation antipsychotic agents. Uh, so uh, I, I know that we've both been involved in uh, this uh, uh, work. Uh, more recently, it is an intriguing finding that they found that uh, in many uh, places in the brain that are relevant for uh, regulation, including serotoninergic media, including dopaminergic yeah, including striatum, including thalamic uh, area, prefrontal cortical areas, uh, there are these trace amino acid receptors, uh, more specifically so-called TAR1s. And they seem to work as rheostats. And they have 
ability in a bivalent fashion, if uh, it is inadequate transmission to upregulate it and vice versa, if it is uh, uh, excessive to downregulate it. So there is some initial, there's more than initial work. There are phase three studies in schizophrenia, but there is uh, some initial enthusiasm about using this type of agent uh, to treat bipolar illness. So that is definitely something that would be interesting. Another area of cutting edge research has to do with modulation of GABA transmission. So we know that uh, uh, GABA uh, interneurons in the prefrontal cortex, and there are three types of them. We don't need to get into detail. Carvalbumin uh, type of GABA interneuron, a somatostatin uh, expressing uh, uh, GABA interneurons, serotonin-3 receptor expressing GABA interneurons. But bottom line, if they are malfunctioning, the entire so-called uh, prefrontal microcircuit that involves different types of, of GABA interneurons and glutamate uh, neuron will not only translate into having symptoms of mood disorder, but downstream will appear as dysregulation of monoamine signaling. Uh, there have been studies that have noted that there is disturbance of GABA and glutamate signaling in context of bipolar illness. So there's a, a big question now would positive allosteric modulators of GABA-A receptors be helpful in context of bipolar illness? Again, some very preliminary work, some preclinical work indicating that there may be hope in these agents and uh, along uh, with addressing mood symptoms may also ameliorate sleep in some of these patients. So that is definitely something that is interesting and talking about glutamate, uh, there is some preliminary evidence in an ongoing research about uh, using ketamine for individuals who have bipolar depression associated with suicidal ideation. So I know you do a lot of this cutting edge research. So uh, I'd be curious to hear your comments on any of the above. TAR1 modulation, uh, positive austeric modulator of GAPA, and big controversy. In the past, people would say, my goodness, if somebody has bipolar disorder, do you really want to start them on ketamine? So what are your thoughts, Greg? So Vlad, first of all, thank you for you know a pretty extensive kind of summary of some of the work out there. And let me break it down piece by piece for the audience. Okay. First of all, you know, the old theories about blocking a chemical or raising a chemical. Let's globally block dopamine. Let's globally raise serotonin. Let's globally block nor uh, norepinephrine. We know that it's a much more elegant answer than that, obviously. So I think the work that you and I have been a part of over the last 10 years and some of the work we're still doing is looking at specific receptor subtypes, right? So instead of hitting all the serotonin receptors, let's take a look at serotonin-3. Let's take a look at the influence of serotonin-7. I'm doing a bipolar study of a medicine right now, Vlad, is a primary serotonin-7 modulator. Um, so let's take a look at those serotonin subtypes, but then let's look at which nerve cells they tend to hang out with. Do they hang out with GABA nerve cells, as you mentioned, with one of the serotonin-3 subtypes? Do they sit around the glutamate nerve cells? Do they crosstalk with dopamine? What do those various subtypes do? And the one we've done a lot with over the last 20 years has been serotonin-2A. You know, our atypical antipsychotics were developed to modulate not just dopamine, but to modulate serotonin-2A. It's kind of what I think of as the simplistic definition of an atypical. Because we know serotonin-2A and dopamine cross-talk to each other. They modulate neural networks. And it's another way to kind of reset that thermostat, to reset the balance for some of our patients. 
One of the ones that's hot, and it's one for the audience that I think it's something you're going to be hearing a lot about, is the trace amine receptor that Vlad brought up. Uh, Vlad, the first time I ever heard about this was a colleague of ours, a mentor of mine, Steve Potkin. And he wrote in that article published back, I believe, in the 1970s, that said there's a, there's a group of these trace amines that modulate neurotransmission that may be part of the rheostat about how things get slightly off track. And as you and I have both been a part of, there's a number of trials going on right now with two different agents that modulate the trace amine receptor. It's an intracellular receptor that also gets co-modulated on the surface with other receptors, primarily seems to be located intracellularly. And it may be a way to kind of reset the thermostat when it comes to some of these trace amines and how they modulate dopamine and other monoamines. Okay, let's dive into this one. And why don't we have a discussion of it? And you mentioned it, but the positive allosteric modulators, there's a group of these medicines we call PAMs. They don't block a receptor or open a receptor, but they modulate what happens to that receptor when your endogenous chemical, in this case, GABA, hits the receptor. And so the PAMs for GABA, our university at Washington University has a whole lab set up that's looking at those lab, saying these group of medicines that come out of a neural steroid background, they're chemicals we all make by nature but they can get off target. What happens if we tinker with those and reset that GABA positive allosteric site? So these neural steroids that are endogenous that we know that may get involved with things like postpartum depression, we've done studies with recurrent unipolar depression, but they look like a very interesting way to help reset the thermostat for people that are struggling with mood disorders. And I think that the really exciting part of that, Vlad, is it's not gonna be a take forever medicine. Many of these medicines in development for mood disorders are going to be, you know, there's an IV infusion right now that's approved for women that have postpartum depression. And the version we've done is an oral version. You take it for two weeks and then you only take it again if you need it. So it's not going to be an ongoing chronic treatment. These may be episodic treatments, which is a different way to think about treatment in the fields when it comes to mood disorders. And then if I step back, Vlad, if I was kind of thinking about the analogy, the analogy I then look at is GABA and glutamate are two of the key neurotransmitters that are heavily found, widely distributed in the brain. One's an excitatory receptor, the glutamate receptors in MDA and AMPA. They make nerve cells want to fire. They let calcium go inside the nerve cell. Calcium is positively charged. It goes in, nerve cells want to fire. GABA is just the opposite. It's an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It lets chloride go inside the nerve cell. Chloride's negatively charged. As chloride goes in that nerve cell, it makes nerve cells not want to fire. And the way that I explain this to my medical students, and I was just having a talk here with some of our nurse practitioners, is that GABA and glutamate are like the brake and the gas pedal in your car. And those two things have to work together. If either one gets stuck, it's hard to get where you want to go. So we need the brain to fire, to excite, to turn on. We need, we need glutamate to work. But we need the brake to kick in as well. And we need to be able to pump the brake when we want to. So GABA and glutamate. Those nerve cells that control cellular firing, stimulation, and slowing down of neural firing, those two things have to work in concert. So we have a whole host of medicines coming out. They're going to reset that GABA-glutamate interface. And the way I, I describe the analogy, Vlad, is instead of raising the chemicals, we're trying to reset the thermostat. Reset the thermostat about why some of our people develop various forms of mood disorders. What would you caution? Because I'm similar to you. I have not done IV ketamine here at my site. I've had patients that have done IV ketamine, but I've done a lot of research on S-ketamine, you know, intranasal ketamine. And we've had several patients, 
off-label, use S-ketamine for treatment of bipolar depression. One of my patients who had bad bipolar depression. We found S-ketamine to be very beneficial for her. So what would you caution clinicians that may be thinking about ketamine and that glutamate mechanism? What would you caution when it comes to bipolar? Who would you not use it with? Where would you think about using it? What do you think the data tells us and what would you be careful with as a clinician as far as side effects and safety? So I would say that number one, we have very limited data and they're mostly bipolar depression. Uh, if used in relatively pure bipolar depression, uh, available data suggested that these agents are, uh, again, relatively safe and are beneficial. And uh, there is an early indication that actually may help suppress suicidal ideation. On the other hand, we have to keep in mind that uh, bipolar disorder, as I previously mentioned, is the closest genetic relative of schizophrenia. And we do know that uh, individuals, for example, who have significant genetic loading for schizophrenia or bipolar don't respond to lithium very well. So the question is, if somebody has significant loading for schizophrenia, we are meeting these individuals in the course of the pressed phase. Uh, they've neglected to tell us about uh, psychotic symptoms. And we introduce ketamine then, what will happen? And the question is, we really don't know. But what I would do is screen. So I would screen for occurrence of psychotic symptoms. Uh, I would especially screen for uh, dystonic uh, psychotic symptoms, uh, for mania with prominent psychosis. Uh, those would be individuals that I would favor less uh, for esketamine and ketamine treatment. Uh, for a very simple reason, we just don't have enough evidence of safety in those, in those patients. And we know that... Uh, NMDA antagonism is one of the preclinical models uh, for inducing uh, schizophrenia-like behaviors in, in animals. So NMDA antagonism, not a good thing in somebody who has vulnerability towards uh, schizophrenia. Again, having said that, in relatively pure depressed state, uh, it seems so far that esketamine and ketamine may be beneficial. Uh, and I like your analogy. I think thinking about GABA and glutamate is kind of yin and yang and being inseparable and tethered to each other is probably the correct thing to do uh, because studies that have looked at TMS and studies that have looked at ketamine is whenever we increase glutamate transmission, we are at the same time increasing GABA transmission. And obviously, if we didn't, that would lower the seizure threshold and people would start having seizures. So uh, Mother Nature has made it so that whenever you uh, influence one of these neurotransmitters, be it GABA or glutamate, the other one will follow too. Now, Greg, uh, uh, there is a lot of work. There are a couple of things that I would like to ask you. Number one, what are your thoughts, uh, because I, I know you're involved with this as well, about using TMS to treat bipolar depression and more specifically theta burst? to treat bipolar depression. There are a couple of protocols that are going on right now. And the second one, I know it is also kind of a, a pet project of yours, and that is uh, uh, using uh, digital platforms, both for symptom monitoring and possibly as therapeutic interventions in bipolar. So uh, please educate us about these topics. Yeah, all, all great topics. You know, there's a lot of excitement right now in the field of bipolar, you know, hitting new novel neurotransmitters, trying to reset the thermostat, be it, as we talked about with the GABA glutamate medicines, the neural steroids or the glutamate modulators. And there's a host of those glutamate modulators. Vlad, we're doing studies right now of every step inside the glutamate cascade. 
hitting yeah. the NMDA receptor, hitting the AMPA receptor, hitting immature, which turns on neurogenesis. So I think there's going to be some fascinating research coming out of there. Now you take us to the field of, you know, outside external neuromodulation. Um, you know, what do we do there with TMS? And we have a TMS unit right beside my clinic. Um, and it's fascinating. So, you know, we, we know the data on refractory depression, that TMS, we've shown it to work. It's approved there. There's now some data coming out about TMS for helping with bipolar depression. And as you said, there's this novel strategy that I have not yet been a part of. I know you and I have discussed it, the theta burst strategy, where you're going to bring people in. It's going to have a faster onset, probably a higher response rate. The group at Stanford has done a lot of the original excited, you know, exciting research looking at the theta burst stimulation. Um, and I, I think it's going to be really promising. It's probably going to have faster onset. I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't have a little higher efficacy. We'll have to watch and see if there's a little side effect burden. We have to watch there as well, though. But Vlad, what's your thought about the theta burst technology? Yeah, you know, it's uh, I, uh, I really do not have any experience with my patients when it comes to bipolar depression, although uh, just uh, high frequency uh, TMS and bipolar depression has shown some promise. Again, this is very preliminary. Uh, theta burst, I've had several patients with MDD, and uh, it is modification of, of the Stanford SNT protocol, or it used to be called SANE protocol, in that patients were receiving uh, uh, 10 treatments in a day. Yep. So it is a 20-minute treatment, pause till the end of the hour, another treatment, and so forth for five days in a week. And I've had a patient uh, respond in incredible manner. So uh, it, it, the patient who has been struggling with treatment-resistant uh, depression for a couple of decades has noticed uh, a significant relief with the strategy. Now, it has crossed my mind that there may be a little bit of uh, uh, bipolar uh, genetics involved in this scenario. I have not seen much data, although if we go to government uh, site, we will see that there is a protocol going on right now where they're using theta burst treatment for bipolar depression. So I, I guess, uh, uh, you know, uh, let, let's, let's uh, keep on uh, checking in and see what will develop. But uh, obviously, somebody thinks that it's a treatment uh, that will have some uh, promise. Um, what do you think about digital therapeutics? Uh, I know that you, you, you have done quite a bit of work with digital therapeutics. Anything we should look forward to in the realm of bipolar treatment? Yes. So you said it right. So there's a, a variety of digital strategies that are being developed. Some of those digital strategies are you know, medication reminders, medication trackers. Um, you know, sending a text to a college student and saying, hey, to have a good day, take your medicine. To have a good day, you got to start out with a good day. And some of those studies by the Harvard group have shown dramatic increases in compliance with just digital reminders that are kind of self-coaching tools. So that's one nice place, uh, you know, that I think is kind of nice. We also have medicines now that are digital trackers. How's your symptoms? Let's send us your symptoms. Let's have alerts that if your symptoms start to dip beyond a certain threshold or certain warning symptoms start to manifest, decrease sleep, things of that nature, we're going to send you and your clinician a warning note. Hey, you know, we're getting in the yellow zone. Let's let's tread with caution. I think the even more exciting area, which you've alluded to, is can we use digital strategies to help with primary sets of symptoms in people with psychiatric illnesses? Most of the studies I've been working with so far have been looking at cognition. Can we use digital strategies to strengthen various pathways in the brain for working memory, processing speed, executive function? And I think the preliminary data says, yes, we can. What we don't know at this point is, 
are, the, are those results generalizable? So we talk about what we call near transfer and far transfer benefits. So if I give you a, a digital strategy where I have you exercise lead over and over again, your ability to count backwards, you can probably count backwards quicker, right? And that pathway in the brain where you're counting backwards, we can probably show that that pathway is becoming more efficient. Does that generalize to being better at sitting in front of your digital electronic records at your office? Right. Or improving your cognitive benefits associated with bipolar depression. And I think the data is still out there with that. Um, it's going to be a fascinating area to look at. So near transfer versus far transfer of benefits when it comes to these digital therapeutics. So let's say you have working memory issues associated with bipolar depression. I have a lot of hope that these strategies that are going to help to exercise working memory pathways may help working memory. <clears throat> Will they have far transfer benefits to moving the needle with core symptoms of depression? And I think that's a, a more intricate answer and a more intricate question. Uh, Greg, when we're on this topic, uh, you mentioned cognition in bipolar disorder. Uh, there is a whole new area about symptom-specific treatments. So uh, dexmedetomidine is an alpha-2 agonist that has been approved for a symptom of, of uh, bipolar disorder, agitation. What do you think about those therapies that focus primarily on one of the symptoms, possibly in multiple different psychiatric conditions? You know, I, I think, let me say this. So our targeted approach about just trying to block a chemical in the brain or raise a chemical in the brain has not yielded as much benefit as we wish we'd had. So if you look at the breakthroughs in cancer treatment, some of the breakthroughs in diabetes treatment, you know, our field has kind of lagged behind on some of these groundbreaking breakthroughs. So I think that means you got to shake up the way you're thinking when it comes to research, when it comes to clinical outcomes. How do we move the needle in a way that gets better benefit? So let's use the example. If this was my son with bipolar disorder and he was getting arrested because he was getting agitated and I had a treatment at home that maybe could help with the agitation so I didn't call the police, of course I'd want that treatment. Similarly, if I had somebody on the unit who was hospitalized because they were manic and they were putting their fist through the wall and I was afraid they were going to hurt my staff and I had a treatment who could address that symptom, I'd want to use it. If we flip into something that you and I have talked a lot about, cognition. You know, cognitive impairments is transdiagnostic in mental illness. If the brain isn't functioning well, it's hard to focus. It's hard to concentrate. You tend to fall behind at your job. So if we had treatments that could help that domain of pretty much any of our mental health illnesses, I think we would think about, you know, a primary specific treatment for that domain of a mental health condition. I like your synthesis. So uh, let's look for more holistic approaches to treating psychiatric conditions. But if we have proven means of addressing one specific symptom that is interfering with our patient's quality of life or functioning, why not avail ourselves of that opportunity? So it's a combination. It's, it's both holistic approach. But again, if we have treatments with proven efficacy for a single symptoms, why not? Vlad, as always, you know, thank you for joining me for this series. Thank you for this conversation. And thank you to the audience for joining us. Uh, for this informative discussion that hopefully will you know pique your curiosity about your clinical practice for everyone out there in the audience let me just say this is an exciting time to be in the field of brain science there are new innovations that are right around the corner things that are coming to us that are filed with the fda that are in the pipeline they're going to change the way we think about treating our patients that have various mental health conditions including our patients with bipolar disorder 
For more information on this series, please visit the show notes. And I want to thank everyone for joining us today. 